Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. I just feel like everybody in this family is judging me, you know, instead of respecting my lifestyle choices. Uh Uh-huh. Tell me more about that. Well, just look at them. You know, they think I'm an idiot because my hobby is trying to lick every Anglican cathedral in the United Kingdom. So you feel as if the rest of the family doesn't bother to find out why it's important to you to do that. I've licked 42 cathedrals so far. But it's all about my sister and her research and curing some dumb disease. She was always the good one, the smart one, definitely the pretty one. I really hear you. I feel that way sometimes, too. Isn't it funny the way we both feel like that? You know what, Todd? Ever since you became an FBI hostage negotiator, I feel like you're using your techniques on me. You know what, Kion? It's okay with me if you stay under the table just like that, but I'd really like it if you'd come back out. It would make me feel more secure. Well, okay, fine. That's great, because I really love to see your face and listen to what you have to say. Thank you. I'm going to ask you to put down that serving fork and the gravy boat and just take my hand. Well, I don't know. Come on, just try it. Well, uh, okay, here. I got her. (gasps) Now grab her, everybody. Aunt Louise, get the gravy before she spills it. Sniper, stand down. Repeat, stand down. You let go of me. I trusted you, Greg. Today on the show, what crisis specialists can teach you about holiday meals. Also, the breakout podcast that everybody's going to be talking about at dinner. And lastly, Neil Gaiman and Amanda Palmer plan your listening choices on a long car ride. And now he's wondering if his Thanksgiving invite from Chuck Hagel is still a thing. Colin McEnroe. It's actually very awkward. I mean, like, you know, do I call him? Do I, like, maybe he doesn't want to have Thanksgiving anymore. He's stepping down as Secretary of Defense. I don't know whether you know that or not. But, I mean, do I call him? Is it still on? I don't want to be that guy. All right. So uh, we have uh, Henry Alford. And that, uh, in fact, uh, what you just heard was an audio adaptation of Henry Alford's uh, New York Times article from this Sunday. We're in the process of uh, doing audio ad- adapt- adaptations of all of Henry Alford's prose work over the decades. It's We've got a big NEA grant for this. Um, before we bring Henry on board here, though, I just have to – like I have this other, this other question that I want to ask somebody. I just maybe you people could write into me about this because it has occurred to me that, you know, when you see things on the Internet, sometimes you see those things because of choices you've made, right? I mean advertisements and things like that. It's not everybody else is seeing them. So like 70 percent of the time that I use YouTube – before I can watch whatever I want to watch, I have to watch a commercial for the Sting musical. And it's like these guys going down the docks going, what do we want? We want to go boats. <laughs> this has been going on for like a month now. And I'm just, I suddenly occurred to me today, maybe I'm, maybe this doesn't happen to everyone. You know, maybe not everybody else sees the Sting commercial all the time. So please email me and tell me whether that's true or not. Although it would be just good if you just said, no, we, it's all of us. You weren't singled out. All right. So later in the show, we're going to talk to Katie Waldman about uh, the podcast Serial, which everybody's addicted to, including me. Henry Alford's joining us right now. Uh, born in 1810, Henry Alford was dean of Canterbury and one of the most variously accomplished churchmen of his day, poet, preacher, painter, musician, biblical. Wait a minute. This is the wrong Henry. Who gave me this introduction? 
This is wrong. Henry Alford is one of our favorite writers. He's the author of uh, many wonderful books, most recently, Would It Kill You to Stop Doing That? And uh, he is, therefore, an expert in manners and mores. And so you've probably read other stories about, you know, how to sort of keep the peace at the Thanksgiving dinner table. Henry, as he tends to, went one step further. So you actually went and you talked to FBI negotiators, police negotiators, hostage specialists, people who, who actually get uh, other people through the worst kinds of crises. And, and what did you ask them? Uh, well, you know, I started out just with this general premise that Thanksgiving is this time where people from various parts of your life are coming together, and it can get a little fractious. It can get a little delicate around the table. So the first thing was just, you know, how do you get people who don't want to talk to each other to talk to each other? How do you, you know, calm them down enough that they can be civil to one another? And so, I mean, maybe it's good to give some examples of this. Um, although, well, let's talk about some of the techniques first, because sometimes it's not a question of the, whether people are willing to talk to each other. They're all too willing to talk to each other, but about some divisive subject. So, yeah. so as, you, as you heard even at the beginning of the show here, so you have somebody who suddenly decides that the family looks down on her, doesn't like her, doesn't respect her lifestyle choices, plus she's had about you know, seven glasses of Pinot Noir. And, and so what did they tell you to do about that? Well, strangely, they didn't bring up the Pinot Noir. <laughs> I would have gone after that first, right? Right, and said, "Let's ease into the liquor." No, the two um, the two commonalities of all nine of these folks who I talked to were uh, active listening and emotional labeling. Active listening, you know what that is? It just means shut up, don't have any judgments, just draw the person out. Active labeling, a little more complicated. That's where you're actually paraphrasing what the bank robber, I mean your aunt, is saying. <laughs> and you're, so you're saying, oh, so you feel like uh, my mother got all the attention in the family, and you feel like all of us nieces and, and uncles, that we just confirm that, that, that we corroborate that. Um, you just try to talk back at her what, what she's actually saying to you. Do you. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that would actually work? In other words, let's, we, see, we did that to the aunt, and we said, so in other words, you feel blah, 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 blah. I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not persuaded yet. That I, <laughs> Thankfully, there are other techniques that you found. I, I think that might just make the aunt matter. You know, it's like, yes, that's exactly. Don't just tell me what I've been saying to you. I just said that. Don't repeat it back to me. I'm already upset. <laughs> it's true. Well, I think that the, you know, what's important here is that the, these are techniques for people in crisis. <laughs> I think if you're having a normal conversation and someone says to you, how are you, and you say, what I hear is, you're interested in me. Um, yeah, I think you're really going to piss them off. But I think if that same person, instead of saying, how are you, that person rebukes you or is screaming, then, yeah, I think that that's the, a little bit of that paraphrasing is going to talk them off the ledge. And so, no, another thing that was suggested to you by one of these experts, and I think this one is kind of true, it's that, you know, if grandma and grandpa are talking about how much they love church and how important that is and how wonderful Reverend Wallbanger is and his sermon last week was so great, and you're sitting there, 24-year-old atheist who feels that these are all fairy tales and superstitions, it isn't necessarily incumbent on you to match their enthusiasm with your own version of enthusiasm. 
Exactly. And, and, and is this the moment to tell them about your atheism? Um, you know, I think it, it, probably the Thanksgiving table is not the time to come out as a homosexual. You know, I just think that some people, for whatever reason, they, they pick this family holiday meal as a time to unburden, uh, to unbosom some dark secret truth. And it's probably the worst possible time to do that. You mean, so this stuffing is terrific, and then somebody else says, you know what else is terrific? Gay sex. That's what I found anyway. <laughs> exactly. Now, one of the questions you asked, Henry, was whether or not it's lying. You asked these hostage negotiators, crisis negotiators, um, whether or not lying would make sense in some of these highly fraught, very tense family dinner table situations. Yes, and a police officer with the Syracuse Police Department said to me, um, we don't call it lying, we call it minimizing, <laughs> um, which is very helpful. That, that's going to lower your, your shoulders right off the bat. Um, but no, her idea was that, you know, that you're trying to get people to think that a situation isn't so bad, that you kind of break it down for them so that they can see a little bit of sunlight there. And yeah, as one of the other, one of the former FBI negotiators said to me, um, you know, the, one of the main tools in a negotiator's toolkit is um, that you figure out the easy stuff right up front and you postpone, postpone, postpone the difficult stuff. So if you can hand them a little conversational um, piece of candy, um, something up front that that just relaxes them, then, yeah, these bigger issues, the atheism and, and the being gay, that stuff you can you can put on the on the uh, side table for later. Speaking of the side table, we have a tweet from Amy who says, my father casually places a book titled The Second Amendment on the coffee table at Christmas. All right, that's not what we do at the, we, that's not the kind of placing something on the side table that Henry Alford is talking about right now. Yeah, not I think no politics and no recent medical <laughs> procedures. Um, those, are, those are two topics that I would take, take off the table right away. Because, you know, Thanksgiving, it's only an hour and a half, two hours. So I think it's totally fine to say a cone has descended, and here are a couple of topics that, that I don't want to hear about. The, um, and in terms of that piece of candy, too, I mean, if we go back to Grandma and Grandpa and the atheist, you could sort of say if you're the atheist or sitting next to the atheist or you sense the atheist about to rise up and speak for atheism and against religion, you could sort of say, well, you know, I'm kind of impressed with some of the stuff Pope Francis has been saying lately, you know, or, uh, or something yep. like that, right? That's a piece of candy, right? Yep, absolutely. And I, I think there's also, you know, there's a lot of room for what I call a preempt. Um, if you sense that the conversation is going in a certain direction, you just say, hey, you know, I have controversial opinions about this topic, and I'd rather we talk about something else. Um, or my mom will turn to either person, the person on either side of her at, a, at, a, at the dinner table and say, um, just FYI, I'm a little hard of hearing, so if anything that I say sounds absurdist, don't take it personal. <laughs> um, yeah, or you could say I've just taken a medication for the first time ever, and exactly. I don't, you know, I don't right. know what I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know. Right. What 
then everyone knows what's up. Right. Or there's a story of um, that Dolly Parton, sometimes when she sees that someone is, uh, a dude is tongue-tied in the face of Dolly and her corporeal awesomeness, Dolly will take that dude's head and smash it right into her chest. Welcome to Dollywood. Um, I don't think we recommend that for Thanksgiving. That's, it's probably not a Thanksgiving gambit, but, um, but, but you see where I'm headed. You see where I'm headed. All right. We're going uh, uh, to see how good uh, you are. After all, you've gone to school with all these crisis negotiators. We're talking to Henry Alford. Uh, his, he writes about manners, including the book, Would It Kill You to Stop Doing That? So um, let's imagine we're at Thanksgiving dinner. Let's see. Um, I'm talking to my cousin Todd, who's from South Carolina, and I'm your typical Northeastern liberal, which I actually am. And so I'm saying, and you, I don't know who you are in this scenario, in this role-playing scenario. You're, I don't know what you are. You're Uncle, <laughs> Uncle Henry or something. Or, okay. Uh, um, so, Todd, I notice you still have the Confederate flag on your car. You know, it's like having a swastika or something. They banned swastikas in Germany, Todd. They ought to ban the Confederate flag in America. But instead, you're effectively, Todd, because you're an idiot, driving around with a swastika on your car. It just happens to look like the stars in bars. All right, so you better jump, jump in, Henry. You better do something. Wow. So I'm confronted with that dialogue. What do I do to suppress it? Yeah, you're the crisis negotiator. Boom. Yeah. Jump in before Todd and I you know, are at gunpoint. And Todd probably well, has a I think gun. it's kind of an interesting conversation. It was the tone <laughs> of it that flipped me out. Mm. So I would try to diffuse or derail as soon as possible. Mm. Um, so what I would probably do in that situation is I would have beforehand – probably thought of a couple of um not quite games but conversational topics oh is this we, is this track two diplomacy is this what you're doing right sort now? of track two diplomacy or you know it's just like uh, you guys let's not have that conversation right now but would it be too geeky if we all went around the table and we all answered the same question. Mm -hmm. I know last year we did, what are you thankful for? Let's freshen it up a little. Maybe let's do, you know, what surprised you this year? Or what shoes are you going to buy in the next year? <laughs> Something like that. All right, so that was, a, that was a more, that was sort of track to diplomacy. That was sort of deflection. That you were basically. I would try to deflect yeah. that. This was. Because yeah, that's making me very uncomfortable. Right. And this was suggested by your, among your crisis negotiators, right? That sometimes what you really just need to do is get the whole conversation on a different track. I think they even suggested that maybe the, some of the cousins would have put together a little skit. Yeah. And actually, a point, a sort of follow up point to that is. You know, this idea of inviting an outsider to Thanksgiving, it's sort of built into Thanksgiving's mandate already. But, you know, that, that mysterious, possibly alcoholic neighbor who you only see once a year, get him to Thanksgiving. Or, you know, <laughs> hello, Nigerian. You student. want an extra alcoholic at the table? Is yeah. this a good idea? <laughs> <laughs> well, you want anyone from outside the family who's going to be there because that uh, very often that will put people on on good behavior yeah and did you say that nigerian exchange student right from yeah. your kids you know your son's ninth grade class bring him to the table um and of course then uncle alan says you know one of your cousins keeps sending me spam all the time kid uh, <laughs> 
Some Nigerian guy's always offering me some big bank account I can claim. Yes, we wanted you to finally meet him right. so he can do his pitch in person. And we just hope that the, co- the skit the cousins have done <laughs> is not Penelope's body piercings are really stupid. That the skit itself is not not uh, gasoline on the fire. Well, Henry Alford, always great to talk to you. We do recommend people go back and uh, read this article before they sit down for Thanksgiving. I don't know. Do you are you hopeful about all? I mean, you say in the article that you don't have bad Thanksgiving problems in your family. That everyone we don't. No, we have really um, everyone in my group is is super pleasant. and on occasion, we have invited, you know, if you invite a group of other folks that you don't know well, you have the awkward conversation. Right. But that's not a huge problem. Because the guest goes, did you see Sean Hannity this week? I love that guy. <laughs> exactly. All right, Henry Alford, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks so much for having me. All right. One of our favorite guests, one of our favorite writers, Henry Alford. We'll take a break. We'll come back with Katie Waldman, who, among other things, hosts a podcast about a podcast. And I think there's a podcast about that podcast, too. Damn straight, y'all. Love you, Mom and Dad. We out. See you in a month for Christmas. We doing this all again. All right. Uh, Tucker Ives, who's producing his first ever scramble today, has just pointed out to me that when this show is available later today in podcast form, it will effectively be a podcast about a podcast about a podcast. Um, and, and so that's good. That's good. We're, the, the nesting doll uh, continues. Uh, joining us now is Katie Waldman. She's a staff writer for Slate Magazine. Uh, she does many things there, and one of them is to co-host uh, the podcast uh, about the podcast serial. Uh, it's um, it's considered a spoiler podcast, but we're not going to spoil. I think it's actually pretty hard to do a spoiler with serial anyway. I don't think they're really so far not these bolts from the blue. But this is certainly for those of you who haven't been following this. This well, actually, Katie, we know that something is serious. We know that something is important in the world of media when David Carr says it. Is. And so this morning in the New York Times, David Carr said that Serial is a breakout uh, podcast. It is a podcast that is going to, as others have suggested, be kind of a gateway drug into podcasts. Um, and so, Katie, I'm going to let you sort of uh, kick things off. Just explain to people what it is we're talking about with Serial. Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here uh, or to be on the show. And Serial uh, is a new sort of rage. It's a podcast, as you said, um, in which Sarah Koenig, Jer Koenig, um, who's associated with This American Life, basically re-examines the 1999 murder of a high school student, Heyman Lee. Um, the person who was convicted of the crime is her ex-boyfriend, Adnan Syed. Um, and as Koenig goes back and sifts through police reports and cell phone records, and basically looks over the case that the state presented against Syed, um, she finds a lot of doubt. Um, she speaks to a lot of the people involved in both the criminal justice process um, of this particular case and just the people in the neighborhood uh, where um, the victim and Adnan lived. And basically it's just this very immersive um, picture of of this high school community and then what happens um, in court to a nun. It's, it's just, um, it's incredibly gripping. I, I know practically everyone I know is a fan. I am a fan, too, and I did it. Um, there needs to be, by the way, a neologism. I, I don't think it exists so far. 
for binge watching a podcast. I don't know, <laughs> a b- b- borging or something, or po- porging. I, I'm not sure what it is. But so I kind of binge listen to it. I mean, I listened to a few episodes, and then my significant other was out of town, and I just kind of crunched down and and listened to one after another. And I think you know, and, and the way that it, to describe it. I think is to fail fail to really describe its its appeal because you really you almost do have to listen to it. You do have to sort of see what's going on here. And and I think we're reacting, Katie, to a whole bunch of different things. But to me, the strength of the podcast is the weakness of the podcast. And that is that it's about Sarah Koenig trying to figure out how to do a very important style of crime reporting that she isn't necessarily the best trained person for. I mean, there's something, I mean, there are, it's a, it's a story, it's a, it's a series with multiple protagonists. There's the accused killer, uh, there's the crime itself, there's this whole big cast of other people. But in a way, the real protagonist is Sarah Koenig, and you're listening to her kind of try to figure out how to do this. But I want you to react to that idea. Sure. I mean, I think it's, clear that this is a detective story to some extent, and detective stories are always about the detective. Um, Sarah emerges as this incredibly appealing, um, charismatic protagonist, but I think that she also, and I'm not sure how um, how truthful this portrayal is, but she kind of inhabits the role of this lovable doofus who says, oh, I'm not a crime reporter. I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm so won over by Adnan when I speak to him on the phone. And so um, I think part of that is an attempt to get us to really relate to her as narrator. We feel that, you know, she's not too different from us. And there's a kind of intimacy in, in imagining ourselves in her shoes reinvestigating this crime. Um, but also recognizing the humanity of everyone involved. But I do think that given the nature of the crime, given the fact that this is a true life murder, um, it does become problematic to sort of have this every woman um, putting herself um, at the center of what's happening. If if really this case is going to be reopened, if Adnan's fate is on the line, maybe we should expect a more straight up account of, of what's happening. But then we wouldn't be listening the way that we are. And, and I, you know, I hadn't considered the point that you just made that maybe I think you're too young to remember, but there used to be a series named uh, called Columbo with Peter Falk, you know, and he was this guy in this rumpled overcoat who didn't really seem like he had a clue. And he would just be about to leave the scene of the crime. And he would, you know, his classic trope was, oh, just one more thing. And he would be kind of pressing his fingertips to his forehead. Like, I just thought about this thing that would be really obvious to most people. And, and the, the notion was that there was something disarming about that, that in, in, mm. in some way, because he didn't come across as hyper competent, uh, he could um, extract things from from people that other people won't wouldn't and you're sort of suggesting that one of the ways of inviting us in to this podcast is Sarah Koenig sort of saying well I'm you know I'm only like half step ahead of you the listener and I'm I am also not Sherlock Holmes compared to you you know Inspector Lestrade we're basically we're going to be taking this project on together with pretty much the same set of skills and acumen so come along with me for this ride I mean I I, I think you might be right that that's one of the things that's addictive about it yeah, well, I think that in some ways she's really, really smart, and given her background, of course, but she's really smart about what the medium of a podcast can do for you. It's an incredibly intimate experience having people's voices in your ear, um, listening to, I mean, not just Sarah, but the 
um, the testimony, the tape testimony, and also the new, newly taped conversations between Sarah and some of the other figures in this mystery, um, you hear their voices in your ear. It's incredibly intimate. And there is this sort of mind meld or this relatability question that comes up. And so I think, like, a podcast is a really good place to explore this notion of the detective protagonist as you. Um, you're still sitting out there wondering. I mean, what's one of the interesting things about our audience for just sort of a general interest radio show on public radio is that you know, our audience probably does range from people who listen to a lot of podcasts and have just added this one to their queue to people who maybe are this is the first podcast they've ever listened to because it is a kind of a gateway drug. Everybody's talking mm-hmm. about it. Uh, you want to find out what's all the fuss, what's the buzz about. Now I have to figure out this podcast thing to maybe people who still have no idea what we're talking about and, and can't imagine listening to it. And so for those latter two groups, we're just going to play a, a, a quick a little quip, uh, clip from uh, the podcast Serial, hosted by Sarah Koenig. Somebody is lying here. Maybe Adnan really is innocent. But what if he isn't? What if he did do it, and he's got all these good people thinking he didn't? So either it's Jay or it's Adnan, but someone is lying. And I really wanted to figure out who. So there's almost a little bit of Nick Danger in all this, or like some kind of 1940s radio drama uh, in all this. Somebody's lying, and I really wanted to figure out who. Um, uh, Katie Waldman, I, I think also some of the fun of this, and I think some of the fun for well, see, actually, let's stop there. I'm gonna I'm gonna pause my question right there on the word fun because you sort of alluded to this too, and it's been brought up on Reddit by a, a young man claiming anyway to be the the brother of the the de- dead woman. Um, this is. For for better or worse, this podcast is fun. It's fun to listen to. It might even be fun to sort of try to figure out you what you yourself think about all the evidence that you're being given. But there's something a little odd about that, too. I mean, there is a dead person here, a real actual dead young girl struck down, you know, even before the prime of life. And as her brother was kind of pointing out on Reddit, like everybody's having a lot of fun. Um, and so I don't know. How do you how do you deal with those emotions? Yeah, I think, I mean, that's definitely the most complicated part of listening to Serial, um, that sense of gravitas that, that creeps in and makes you suddenly think this, this could be incredibly unseemly. I, it's difficult because I think that it's a story that should be out in the world, um, especially insofar as it paints a disturbing picture of the way our criminal justice system functions or doesn't. I think a, a lot of the... Of the episodes of the show really steer you towards um, the realization that the criminal justice system didn't work so well in this case. Uh, there was probably not enough evidence, as far as we know so far, um, to convict Adnan. Um, and I think, you know, if the show were just a straightforward portrait of how these institutions got it wrong, it would be very valuable. But, but you're right, there's also that kind of character portraiture and sort of atmospherics and background music all that stuff that just makes it a really entertaining engrossing story and I guess I sort of have a utilitarian philosophy about this you know if that's what it takes to to get people to listen and to hear this important narrative it doesn't seem like like much of a problem although I acknowledge that Maybe there is a real cost to his family, for instance, who hears um, something so grim being churned churned out as something so entertaining. 
you know, it'd be, it's interesting to talk about this in terms of the form itself, okay? Because true crime uh, reporting is nothing new. True crime is entertainment is nothing new. T- true crime rendered and told and narrated artfully is nothing new. You can certainly go back to In Cold Blood by Truman Capote, this incredibly groundbreaking story also of a murder. Um, but I'm wondering what there is about this that's specific to the world of podcasting. I mean, one one thing that makes it special obviously is podcasting can it, it, it unlike even a regular radio show it can be any length so one thing that i'm noticing with serial is some weeks sarah's got you know 33 minutes of material and some weeks she's got more and um and and one thing that it allows her to do is to kind of do this at whatever length she feels is most appropriate and and then another part of this is kind of what you're doing which is we we live in this era of deep dives and rabbit holes you know that um you can have a podcast and and then there's like a million little links and 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 things that people can follow and counter narratives and theories and backlashes i mean the other thing that i'm seeing with serial is that that it's it's a real bright perfect spot for that kind of thing i'm just seeing a lot of commentary about serial in an era that just thrives on on you know wrap-ups and commentaries i'll let you kind of react to that though no, absolutely. I think it's it's strange because it's sort of a niche in which a lot of conversation is flourishing, but it's also just kind of scooping across Twitter, and I, my grandmother is listening to it, and it does seem to be sort of, as you said, a gateway drug to podcasting. And you're right, the sort of the idea that there aren't entrenched rules around this form. I mean, I think to some extent there are because it has been going on for a while, but uh, rules that not a lot of lay people necessarily know about. Sarah and the producers do have a lot of freedom to experiment and say, well, we can make our segments different lengths, we can talk to different people, we can score it differently. Um, it does, it's just, I think the newness of it feels really exciting to a lot of people. I mean, one of the questions, and there's no way to answer it, but I'd be I'd be interested in your thoughts about it anyway, is how repeatable this actually is. In other words, we have this thing, and it really is kind of a breakthrough um, a podcast. It really is appealing. I mean, the numbers uh, David Carr was citing today, I think 5 million uh, downloads overall. Now it's now averaging 1.5 million a week. That's a lot. It's a lot for a podcast. Um, and, and clearly some people are learning to do, maybe your grandmother, I, I don't know, but some people are learning just you know how, how to find a podcast and play it. Uh, and what's the most comfortable way to do it just so they can be part of this and to hear it. And so then the question is, well, so when this is all over, are we just in a new era of podcasts where they're really much more of a familiar mainstream entertainment, or do we just sort of go back to the way things are, which is that some of us like this and the rest of everybody else needs a reason uh, that they don't have anymore to do this thing? You know, I am sort of a podcast evangelist or someone who has faith in the in the evangelism of podcasts. I was converted by pretty recently, actually, and just listening to one led to another. It was sort of like a chain of podcasts. And so I'm pretty optimistic that people will realize this is really a great way of consuming entertainment and that they will jump from serial into other podcasts. Um but, yeah, I don't know. If, I think a different question would be, are serial podcasts going mm-hmm. to be a thing? You know, are we going to have stories unspooled more or less in real time where developments are occurring in the, week, in the weeks between episodes that are then 
um, mentioned on the following episodes. I'm not sure if that's sort of a sustainable model. I think it seems to be posing some problems for the serial team, even as it makes the whole process really thrilling. So I, I'd be interested to see what happens with that. I would argue that all podcasts are effectively serial podcasts. And what I mean by this, it's something that I notice anyway as a podcast consumer, which is, first of all, there's a real intimacy to podcasts. I'm not quite sure I understand in a McLuhan-esque media studies level why that is, but there's something very intimate about them. And I, I noticed that uh, I, I like them. I like the way they bridge from week to week. So, for example, I listen to a lot of the Slate podcasts, and I like the dynamic going on among Bazelon, Dickinson, and Plots. I don't like it if one of them isn't there. I I don't like these big super things where they go on stage with people from other podcasts. <laughs> and, you know, I want this sort of familial structure. This is a bunch yeah. of people that I'm used to sitting around with on kind of an intimate basis. And, 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 and I like it from week to week, too. I like the fact that one week refers to the previous week's week. And so to me, that's what's so interesting. And I think it's part of the there's something intimate about the voice of Sarah Koenig. And, and I think that's part of its appeal. I mean, I think you have to do that with a podcast to be successful. Yeah, yeah, and I think I haven't really thought about um, it in these terms before, but I think there's something almost metaphysical about, I mean, that is the way we live our lives. We live our lives, and they continue to unfold, um, and there's something about the way Serial just checks in with this this story that is ongoing, that didn't exist in a box somewhere in the past, but is still progressing with us as we live our lives. And I think that there's something really... Um, strange and startling about the podcast bringing that reality to the forefront. Um, I'm not sure. I think that Serial does something about um, that makes us sort of compare ourselves to the characters and realize that we're all in this sort of same world and this could happen to any of us. And it, it seems it seems revolutionary to me. Yes, well, as they say in Hamlet, we are all mortal. We have to stop there. Katie Waldman, thank you so much for joining us today. Katie Waldman hosts a podcast on the Slate uh, podcast site uh, about the podcast serial. We will podcast this show in which we talk to Katie about her podcast, about the podcast. Please do a podcast about our show so we can just keep this going. Come on, you know you can do it. Go out there and buy some equipment. Listen to seven episodes of Serial before I realized there'd be nothing about Frosted Flakes. Today's show was produced by Tucker Ives and me. Our intern is Jackie Filson. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Katie Tolarski is our executive producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by Odell Beckham Jr. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff calmly telling Chris Prosperi, put down the cranberry sauce and nobody gets hurt, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, we debate the most profound questions of eating, such as, can you freeze an unshelled raw egg, and why would you want to? And now, back to Colin. On Election Day, we had President Obama on our show, and one of our listeners and our unpaid ombudsman, Josh Dobbin, says on Facebook today that having Neil Gaiman and Amanda Palmer on is actually a bigger deal than that. So uh, imagine, (laughs) and they like that idea. Imagine a place in the universe where everything nerd touches everything cool at one white 
hot, sizzling point, Neil Gaiman and Amanda Palmer are the power couple of that place in the universe. They are authors of books. They are creators of music. Uh, what they want to talk about in particular today is audio books. And so we should say that many Neil Gaiman books are audio books, uh, including his latest, The Graveyard Book. Amanda uh, narrated her most recent book, The Art of Asking, as an audio book, which has many special features on it. We're going to talk about that as well. Uh, you may remember that uh, Neil was here for the Connecticut Forum with John Dankosky when he showed his underpants to the audience. No, wait a minute. That's part of Amanda's actual biography. I got, I got things confused. Amanda Palmer, also a graduate, I believe, of Wesleyan University. So this is uh, an audio homecoming for her. Do you have fond memories of Wesleyan University, Amanda? Oh, good Lord. I have mixed memories uh, <laughs> across the entire spectrum from Wesleyan University. I mean, I, I had some really wonderful, formative moments there, um, including being a DJ on WESU, which is how I got exposed to a lot of music that influenced me, and especially, you know, my first few years of college studying with Alvin Lussier, and mm -hmm. I really took in, like a sponge, I took in an immense amount of influences, even just my first year of college, learning about John Cage and Paulina Oliveros and experimental music, and really, really delving into, you know, the history of music was one of the highlights as I look back, and I get the wider perspective. I was also really miserable in college. <laughs> I was going to say, the, the pause and before I, and I you being answered. I open about that because so many, so many college kids go through a tough time adjusting, and I, I had a really hard time adjusting to college. I was a lot happier once I left and went into the art workforce. So that's sort of an inspiring thing to say, right? If you're a college student right now and you're completely miserable, you should know that Amanda Palmer was too, and look how she turned out. You're not alone. Right. <laughs> I want to do a thought experiment with the two of you. Let's imagine that the two of you do have an eight-hour car ride here for the holidays, and you may get stuck in a snowstorm too, and so load up the car with food. But what's going to be playing in the car? Is it going to be audiobook? Is it going to be music? Is it going to be podcast? For good measure, what's it going to be playing out of? And why don't we divide it up? Why don't we, uh, should we divide it up? Should we let each of you program four hours of that car trip? I think so, definitely, because our deal is that the driver gets to choose, <laughs> ah. um, which is the only way that we can survive because our tastes are so incredibly different. So, Neil, you've got the wheel, you've got the keys right now. You're in control for four hours. Is it going to be an audiobook? Is it going to be a podcast? What are you going to make Amanda listen to? Right now, I'd be making her listen to a couple of audiobooks. Mm -hmm. I'd be, I've been reading uh, The Bone Clocks by David Mitchell. Oh, yeah. Both as a novel and whenever I'm driving as an audiobook. You can toggle back and forth. You can read and then go find it somewhere in the audiobook and listen, and then you can t read some more. You, you're actually cerebrally capable of, capable of such a thing? Actually enjoying it, doing both, because I find I, I read in different ways, and I'm quite happy to read bits through my eyes that I've already read. Well, and the technology keeps your place, doesn't it? Yeah. Audible.com has, has lovely technology that finds where I am. You can actually, they actually do incredibly clever things now if you wanted to do it, I think it's called Whisper Sync, which sounds like something from an evil, <laughs> mad scientist. An evil, evil plumber, it, I think. <laughs> absolutely. Evil plumbers. Mad scientist, evil plumbers. And you can read on your Kindle and you can listen on Audible, and it will keep your place, which I find kind of scary. But I like actually flicking around in real physical paper books and also love just being read to. So I'd be doing that. 
And I'm about to, I'm teaching at Bard University right now and uh, doing a course in adapting Shakespeare where we randomly picked one Shakespeare play. We, we randomized it down and it turned out to be Timon of Athens, the only Shakespeare play about which I know as little as the people I'm teaching. So I'm going to be listening to the audio book of that wherever I'm driving over the next week. I actually saw James Earl Jones play Timon of Athens at the Yale Repertory Theater around 1980, I think. Otherwise, I would have no relationship to that play either. You are probably one of the incredibly few people on this earth who have seen the production <laughs> of Timon of Athens. I didn't even know it existed. That's the first time hearing, and I'm not sure I believe either of you that it exists. It was, it was strange hearing Darth Vader's voice do Shakespeare, but not unpleasant. All right, so uh, that gives us kind of a sense. Now, Amanda, uh, you just pulled into a rest stop. Neil handed you the keys. You get to drive the next leg. That means you're in control. What's going to happen? Well, I'm kind of a weirdo, and I'm addicted to impulsiveness. So I actually really like listening to local radio and just seeing what exists in the bandwidth of wherever I happen to be driving. And if there's nothing fascinating and bizarre worth tuning into, because I will tune into anything from the terrible local pop station to the bizarre religious rantings to, you know, I just kind of love getting a sense of the sonic landscape. But also, since I've just been on tour, I have a pile of CDs that people have handed me. As happens every time I tour, I pick up a few discs at every stop because someone is a singer-songwriter mm -hmm. and someone has you know, has made their own music here or there or whatever. And actually the kind of media and the kind of CDs I'm being handed is getting more and more bizarre as CDs become this expandable and now also sort of antiquated thing. So I would probably force Neil to join me in what I call frock listening. Frock is the name that the Dresden Dolls gave the, like, massive bags and bags of CDs that we would come home with <laughs> when we came <laughs> home from tour. It was short, it was for, short friend for Friends Rock. rock. <laughs> and now we, we have frock listening parties and it usually involves listening to the first song and if it sounds interesting or listenable skipping to the second song and then you know making little piles to keep and look into or my god discreetly leave at the next rest stop <laughs> and once when once we uh, got through that pile because it hasn't been a long tour it's been two weeks so i bet we could get through that pile in under an hour so then, then there's a next step after that it depends how long this drive is, four hours. Well, you, you, get, you get stuck in a snowstorm, too. I'll give you two extra hours. <laughs> well, I actually, all of this talking about audiobooks has really inspired me. Mm. And my list of books to read is growing by mile by mile every single day, especially as I personally meet new authors. I'm, you know, I'm meeting so many fascinating people, and I'm desperate to get to know the work of the people I'm meeting. And I'm also sort of having just put out my own book, a couple of weeks ago, I'm sort of fascinated by the rest of what's going on in book landscape. And, like, for instance, everybody has been telling me about Amy Poehler's book. And I know nothing about Amy Poehler except that my readers are, you know, are also reading her book. So I would magically download Amy's book from the cloud and give that a listen just to see what the rest of my fans are talking about. Uh, we should say, just by way of clarity, that we are recording this a little bit earlier today so that, first of all, if uh, people from another dimension invade us through the whisper sink between 11 and 1, and that will not be reflected in our conversation. And also, you can't call <laughs> in and tell Amanda Palmer and Neil Gaiman that their work inspired you to leave your job as Archbishop of Canterbury and, and record Kurt Vile songs, whatever it is you've done with your life as a result of 
uh, reading and listening to them. Uh, you can't call in and explain that. Uh, you can call me later and tell me that. I want to talk a little bit about audiobooks, uh, qua audiobooks. Um, you know, Henry James said the whole point of literature is to get everything down on the page in a voice that is somehow better than the author's own. And keeping in mind that Henry James did not really say such a thing, that I falsely attributed it to him. Do you see what he was getting at, that, Neil? That in a way, you know, the, the, the goal of a writer is to create an unheard voice, you know, a voice that's somehow absorbed in a different way. In an odd way, an audiobook is uh, a reversal of the process of literature. I don't think it's a reversal, but I think it's an incredibly different process. And it's simply has to be acknowledged and understood that it's not quite the same. Well, that's a glorious made-up quote. Uh, Harold <laughs> Bloom, the famous literary yeah. critic, actually did say that listening to audiobooks is not reading because reading is only done through the eyes. Thus, I suppose, rendering all partially sighted, sighted people barred from the literature that they might have thought they were enjoying, and, and Lord knows what that does to Milton. But there is a difference to the way you pull in the information and the way that you collaborate. The process of giving somebody 26 characters and a handful of punctuation marks and letting them build up from that an entire world is going to be ever so slightly different if somebody's reading it to you because you're not doing that anymore. You're not building up an authorial voice in your head. Mm -hmm. that you're being given a voice and that voice is in some way, to some extent or other, it's the voice that you're going to have to live with. I've been listening to a fantastic audio book, The Bone Clocks by David Mitchell. And one thing it does is it has about six different narrators, because all of the book is first-person narrators, mm -hmm. which is fine, except that there are some characters who crop up more than once mm -hmm. in the book. And none of the narrators have actually checked in with each other. <laughs> so there were characters who were showing up in the book I was failing to notice were characters that I had met earlier because their voices were so different. So you have different strengths and different weaknesses, but what, it, what they are doing is they are ways, I think, of absorbing information when you're doing something else, which is fantastic. You're taking advantage of the dead time, whether it's driving time or airplane time. Or even just the fact that for some reason, as I age, people have decided to print books in smaller and smaller, and, and for some reason, fuzzier types. Right. I don't I have, know why I, they're doing I've it. noticed the same thing. Very peculiar. Yeah, why they know. would do this? I don't know. I don't understand either. Almost everything they're doing that. Magazines and newspapers, too. Everything's getting very small and hard to read as I age, too. So having the audiobooks is great for that. Yeah, we're becoming more and more like Milton, as it turns out. I, I know our time is short here. Uh, Amanda Palmer, I, I'm assuming that when it came time for you to put out an audiobook of The Art of Asking, it never occurred to you for a second simply to sit somewhere and read the book and then go home and say goodbye. That given who you are, what you are, what you uh, bring to any project, you started thinking, what else can I do with this medium of the audiobook besides sit in a studio and read it aloud? So... Talk us through that uh, very quickly. I've watched Neil record a bunch of audiobooks, and I, I really didn't know what to expect walking into the studio. I knew I had three studio days booked. I knew I had to read 90,000 words, and I knew that I was really comfortable and familiar with you know recording studios, so I didn't even really give it much thought. I just figured I would go in and bang it out. But I found myself getting really inspired especially because I'm a passionate radio listener. I'm pretty much constantly 
listening to NPR, if I'm listening to anything at all. Um, and I loved doing this back-and-forth conversation, creative conversation with the producer of the audiobook about where we had to stop and have a music break and which songs to use. And I started digging into my own catalog, trying to figure out what songs I even owned the rights to, because I don't own all my own music, and I didn't want to you know, have to bang down the door of my major label and beg them for a lot of material. So I found myself, as I was recording the audiobook, my inner producer and songwriter was also sort of cooking on the back burner, trying to figure out where would be a really good moment. As with the really classy radio that I've been hearing lately, sometimes it's really wise to give the listener 15 seconds, 20 seconds of music just to emotionally process what's just been thrown at them. But you you can't throw them blank space. They'll tune out. If you give them music... It's sort of like the post-coital <laughs> cuddle where you've just dumped something really heavy on them and then, you're, and then you get to stand there and hold them before you then say, okay, now let's get up and get breakfast. And I found myself really thinking about the pace and the space because, you know, again, with an audiobook, you're dragging the listener along at your own pace. They're not choosing the pace at which you're moving. And I loved discovering that in the studio. It wasn't even something that I had thought about. I could go on and on with you, but I think somewhere some organizer of this day of yours is weeping. Uh, so, uh, we I think they're going <laughs> to leave him and take us away around now. All right. Cue uh, sad violin music now. Right, exactly. We that need was to, really fun, Colin. Thank you. I need to post-coitally uh, process it, so I'm going to go listen <laughs> to some Beethoven cello. Go, go find your audio cuddle. That's going to be my, uh, my website. I'm going to go grab that URL right now. You need audio cuddle. Org. Audio cuddles.com. No, she says .org. She wants to crowdsource it. Yeah, oh, Neil. Yeah, she would never uh, do She doesn't do .com. <laughs> this is Amanda Ball. Anyway, we're talking interruption. This is the operator. Right. We do have to move on. we got to go. Okay, thanks so much. Okay. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. You're not the only cuddly toy that was ever enjoyed by any boy. You're not the only choo-choo train that was left out in the rain the day after Santa came. I'm Kyone Wolf, and I am not done emotionally processing that interview. Can we get the music back up here, please? You're not the only charity light that was left in the night. <sighs> and gave up without a fight.